Okay, mic check. I think I got this set up right. Got a little bit of a late start today. I'm also busy with arguing with someone on the internet. Someone on the internet is wrong. And I, I have made it my mission to convince them that they are wrong and they need to adopt my view. <laughs> All right, let's start the music and do a show. Good morning. Sorry, I am doing a late start today, but I had an errand to run this morning and just got back several minutes ago. And I think I have everything set up correctly and we can do a show. We're going to we're going to pick right back up with the uh, Trump D.C. case and uh, catch up on the filings and that. I don't know how far we'll get. Um, my goal is to well, let me see how big that filing is. We have the other motions to dismiss to read. So we had next one is statutory grounds and the the last one is i think we can do both of these the last one is selective and vindictive prosecution so i think we can get through the other two motions to dismiss and then scan ahead and just see we'll see where we're at so good morning to you if you missed defected last night i think it was a pretty good one you might want to go watch it we had a good time we managed to not offend any group ideology or belief system we were completely non-controversial and everybody in chat loved it we didn't get any pushback at all and uh yeah i think it was one of our standout shows very low risk show 
Um, and uh, <laughs> we managed to we we managed to uh, talk about Christmas lights and beef stew and Irish bars and tipping in Canada, as well as some major news stories. <laughs> so, in a typical de- episode of Defected. But here we are, um, just human number 227. Thank you for being here. If you like this show, if you get something out of it and you would like to support it, the best way, the number one way is justhuman.substack.com. A subscription over there is the best way. The most of your dollar, like a big chunk of your dollar, almost all of it makes its way to me. Or if you don't want to do a paid subscription, just do a free subscription. Because if you do a free subscription, everything on there, you get all the same stuff. There's no paywall on anything that I do. Um, But this is where I do the podcast. So if you're driving or working out, um, working in your yard, putting up Christmas lights like I was yesterday, and you want to listen to something informative, the podcast is available. You can do it through the Substack app, which works really well. Or you can just set it up to feed the podcast to your favorite podcast player. But Substack is how I do the podcast. I got about a thousand people over there who listen to every show. And uh, yeah, if you would like to become one of them, join my Substack. Next best way to support the show is not buymeacoffee.com. They kicked me off after Media Matters complained about me. But ko-fi.com slash realjusthuman. You can buy me a cup of coffee. I have exactly one cup of coffee this morning because I am out of my super gourmet, highly refined, ethically sourced coffee. Um, And the coffee store is closed on Mondays. I did not manage my coffee supply wisely over the Thanksgiving break. I should have bought another bag before the Thanksgiving break. I thought I could get by on just two. I should have bought three. And now we are mission critical when it comes to caffeine. So ko-fi.com slash real just human you can get me a cup of coffee over there also you can leave a note over there and i really appreciate the notes that i get over there i read all of them and yeah i i love it thank you very much and um uk neil good morning uk neil is correct ko-fi is actually better than buymeacoffee.com anyway because ko-fi 100 of the dollars you post over there make their way to me which is pretty awesome Next, perhaps you don't want to just like do something like that, but you would rather get something for yourself. Christmas is coming up. The Just Human merch store at redwhitebourbon45.com has excellent coffee mugs, excellent stickers, koozies, pint glasses, and some shirts too. Program yourself. And they have other, there's other stuff on here as well. All sorts of things. Uh, But my favorite is the coffee cup and the pint glass. So redwhitebourbon45.com is the place to get merch. If you want something sweet, use the affiliate link in the description of the show or from my link tree. You can go to BensonHoneyFarms.com and get yourself some raw honey. Never pasteurized, never superheated, not filtered, just straight up raw honey. They have candy and honey honey, uh, honey barbecue sauce as well, which are good. But my fav- my second favorite thing from that the Bensons have here, besides the honey, are their soap. I think their soaps are amazing. So... BensonHoneyFarms.com. Use the affiliate link, though, 
And whenever you make a purchase over there, it kicks a couple dollars my way. Same thing with bootleg products. If you would like some seasoning, some salsas, some sauces, bootleg products are delicious, um, homemade recipes, fresh ingredients. It's not loaded up with preservatives and all sorts of artificial flavorings and stuff. It's just high quality food. Um, and I love their products. I use their products almost every day because uh, I cook at home a lot. And I've never had anything from bootleg that I didn't think was delicious. So use the affiliate link. Again, you spend a couple dollars over there that kick a few dollars my way. And you get something delicious in return. And lastly, I have added a new sponsor or advertiser, however you want to think of it. It's Manly Cans. You may remember that we advertised Manly Cans for a little while on Badlands. Well, they reached out to me and said they wanted to uh, do an affiliate link with this show. Thank you very much. We got that set up just in time for Christmas. So if you're looking for Christmas gifts, you're not, you have somebody, you want to get them something, a brother, a father, an uncle, whatever, husband, boyfriend, whatever, and you're not sure exactly what to get them, Manly Cans probably has something that they would like. And if you click that affiliate link and you go make a purchase over here, they're going to kick a few dollars my way. I personally am drawn to the Bearded Man can and the Dapper Man can. And this morning, after having been so low on coffee, I'm looking at this coffee can and thinking I should have ordered this last week. So Manly Cans, they got lots of great products over here. Lots of interesting cans, um, snacks and barbecue and nuts and carnivore, just whatever. So I appreciate them giving me an affiliate link. And if you guys are interested in doing some uh, Christmas shopping, use the affiliate link in the description of the show or from my link tree. Go to Manly Cans, pick something out for that man in your life. Okay, okay. So, oh, I didn't even make a folder for today's show. I'll have to do that later. We are on the Trump DC docket. Thankfully, you know what? Even though I'm low on caffeine, I feel like I've had about two cups of coffee before this one uh, because someone was wrong on the internet and I've been arguing with them this morning and a little bit last night and it has me slightly fired up. So thank you to my friend Karma Patriot for being wrong and causing me to argue with you this morning because it has invigorated me. <laughs> it has been, it has been, um, it's been like drinking a Red Bull. Now I'm fired up. <laughs> so, and it's also fun. I love, I love sparring with my friend Karma Patriot. I don't know if she's watching right now, um, or if she'll catch this, but she is a good friend and I really enjoy the arguments that we get into, uh, cause they're always passionate and, um, never, never rude, never insulting. But they're they're always passionate. And sometimes people think that onlookers think we're really mad at each other when really we're not. We're just very uh we're we're just very serious about our points and our beliefs. We have we have conviction. Uh same thing with me and Chris Paul. <laughs> oh, and what I'm arguing about with karma is something I've argued about with Chris Paul uh too. Same thing, same thing. Oh, it's so much fun. Okay. So we're over here on the Trump uh, DC docket 
And uh, our next thing that we need to read, we we did this one right here, the constitutional grounds of memorandum and support. This uh, this this motion for dismiss that was based on the Constitution, I thought it was great. I really enjoyed going over this last week and then talking about it on the Devolution Power Hour last Wednesday. We had a great discussion. Um, so next we need to do um this this was filed on the same day. This motion to dismiss on statutory grounds. Um, if you don't recall. Trump's team filed a motion to dismiss on October 4th or 5th that was on presidential immunity. But then on October 23rd, they filed three more motions to dismiss. One on the based on the Constitution. This one on statutory grounds. And then the next one, and lastly, uh, selective and vindictive prosecution. These filings, we're going to get through them right now. Okay. Introduction. Okay. Just want to make sure I didn't skip a page. page. All right. Introduction. Targeting an audience other than this court, the prosecution's indictment in this matter rants endlessly about President Trump's politics and, in a shockingly un-American display of authoritarianism, accuses him of crimes for having and expressing the, quote, wrong opinions. Buried at the end of this diatribe are conclusory statements that President Trump's alleged actions somehow violated 18 U.S.C. 241, 371, 1512K, 1512C2, and 2. The prosecution does not explain how President Trump violated these statutes beyond simply saying he has, while regurgitating the statutory language. As explained herein, the reason the prosecution employed this tactic is plain. President Trump did not violate this charged statutes, even accepting the prosecution's false allegations as true. Accordingly, the court should dismiss the indictment for failure to state an offense. I have a quick question for y'all uh, that are listening live. Am I popping my peas? Um, like, is that coming through in the mic? It's coming through on my end. But if it's coming through on your end, I don't know. But if it is and it's bothersome, I can uh, try and adjust some settings that will filter that out. Just, just wondering. Just something I'm noticing this morning. They say I'm five by five. Okay. Good morning, Music and Fiction and Cinco and Jax and Buster Lou. Good morning, Kathy, Benton, Grandma. Lady Q, Ryan, Storm, Lynn, Gigi Orno. I'm going to learn to pronounce, like, I want to say Goth 77. I'm going to learn to pronounce it correctly one day because I think it's more like Gert or something like that. It's one of those German words where there's no R in it, but you're supposed to pronounce an R, I think. Good morning to y'all. Thank you very much. Okay. So y'all say, nope, you're good. Okay. It's just, I'm hearing myself. All right. Argument. In ruling on a motion to dismiss for failure, for, for failure to state an offense, a district court is quote, is typically quote, limited to reviewing the face of the indictment and more specifically the language used to charge the crimes. Oh, he said, he laughs out loud. He says, goeth, 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 goeth. Goeth, goeth forth, goeth 77. All right. 
United States versus Sunya. Quote, when considering a motion to dismiss, the court must review the face of the indictment and the indictment must be viewed as a whole and the allegations must be accepted as true at this stage of the proceedings. President Trump denies the allegations in the indictment in this motion and memorandum. Instead, this memorandum sets forth the facts alleged in the indictment so that their legal sufficiency may be assessed for a motion to dismiss. So this is a completely different angle. We've already gone from President Trump had presidential immunity and he can't be charged for actions he took while in office when he has that immunity or else every single person that ever served in any high office would be charged for things that people disagreed with. And the tr- and what the president does, it kind of goes back to that Nixon quote, it's legal because the president president does it right. Like the reason that was said uh, and it's true is because what the president does is legal up until he is impeached by the House and the Senate and convicted there. And then he can be held accountable in uh, the criminal justice system if um, it's warranted. But President Trump survived impeachment. But this is on statutory grounds. And they're going to argue that actually Trump didn't break the law. And this indictment actually doesn't make a good case that he did break the law. It just describes President Trump's opinions and things he said and then states what the statutes are and alleges he violated them without actually making the connection and spelling it out. And there's no real tangible offense here. It's not there. So it's failure to state an offense. All right. One, count one should be dismissed because the indictment fails to allege a violation of 18 U.S.C. 371. Count one of the indictment charges President Trump with conspiracy to defraud the United States under 18 U.S.C. 371. As relevant here, that statute provides, quote, if two or more persons conspire to defraud the United States or any agency thereof in any manner or for any purpose, and one or more of such persons do any uh, do any act to affect the object of the conspiracy, each shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than five years or both. 18 U.S.C. 371. The statute does not define the phrase, quote, defraud the United States or provide further textual guidance about its meaning of scope. At bare minimum, however, the statute requires a showing of trickery or deceit, which the indictment does not allege. Further, for cases outside the heartland of financial fraud, i.e. cases involving fraudulently obtaining money or property from the United States, the statute requires an additional showing of obstruction or interference in a government function. Again, the indictment does not allege this. A conspiracy to defraud the United States requires a showing of deceit or trickery. The Supreme Court has long interpreted the word defraud in 371 to require not just any false statement, but a showing of deceit or trickery. That is based on Hammerschmidt versus United States from 1924. In Hammerschmidt, the government charged political activists who opposed the draft for allegedly defrauding the United States, quote, by impairing, obstructing, and defeating a lawful function of its government, imprinting and circulating handbills urging others to refuse to register for the draft. In other words, prosecutors relied on the broad language of the statute to criminalize advocacy of disfavored viewpoints on a hotly disputed political and social question. The government argued that, quote, the statute is broad enough in terms to include any conspiracy for the purpose of impairing, obstructing, or defeating the lawful function of any department of the government. The Supreme Court rejected this argument, 
holding that the indictment was deficient because the word defraud requires a showing of deceit or trickery, not just advocacy of a viewpoint that the government disfavors and views as false. And I think immediately you can see why they would cite that case and bring this up, because that's what Jack Smith's indictment of Trump does. It says that Trump defrauded the United States through his advocacy and expression of his viewpoint that the election had been stolen from him through various means of fraud. But there was no deceit or trickery in what Trump did. Quote, it's from the Supreme Court in Hammerschmidt. It is obvious that the writer of the opinion and the court were not considering whether deceit or trickery was essential to satisfy the defrauding required under the statute. The facts in the case were such that the question was not presented. The deceit of the public, the trickery in the advanced publication secured by bribery of an official, and the falsification of the reports made the fraud and deceit so clear as the gist of the offenses actually charged in their presence was not in dispute. Actually, sorry, that was the wrong case. That was a different case. Um, or is it Hammerschmidt? It's a commentary on Hammerschmidt, but they're talking about a different case. Oh, they're talking about a case called Haas, but this is from Hammerschmidt. So they're comparing those two cases. Okay. Thus, the court held the statute's core application is to trick or deceive the government into paying money under false pretenses, and this requirement of trickery or deceit applies in all other cases as well. Quote, to conspire to defraud the United States means primarily to cheat the government out of property or money, but it also means to interfere with or obstruct one of its lawful government functions by deceit, craft, or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest. This requirement of trickery or deceit is well established. United States versus Concord Management and Consulting, quote, as long as the conspiracy aims to obstruct the lawful functions of a government agency through some form of deceit, craft, or trickery, or at least by means that are dishonest, it falls within 371's reach. The indictment does not allege acts constituting deceit or trickery. Here, the indictment does not allege any acts that constitute deceit or trickery within the meaning of Hammerschmidt. As relevant here, the indictment alleges three types of conduct that supposedly involved making a false statement. One, claims that the 2020 presidential election was rigged or tainted by fraud or other irregularities made both in public and in communications with public officials. Two, organizing and submitting contingent slates of electors to the President of the United States and the Archivist of the United States. And three, making public claims about the scope of the Vice President's legal authority with respect to the election certification. Allegedly false claims of fraud and irregularities in the election. First, the indictment alleges that President Trump claimed that the 2020 claimed that the 2020 election's outcome was tainted by fraud and other irregularities. It alleges he made such claims publicly, and it gives references for those. It also alleges that he made such claims in meetings and communications with state officials, DOJ, other officials, and federally elected officials. And it gives those citations. The indictment also alleges that President Trump made supposedly false legal claims about the scope of the vice president's authority under the Constitution, and it cites those. These claims cannot support an allegation of attempting to defraud the United States under 371. 
Unlike ordinary fraud cases, the supposedly false claims alleged in the indictment all related to the most publicly visible, vigorously disputed, and widely reported debates of the day, i.e. whether the 2020 presidential election was rigged or stolen against President Trump. Whatever one thinks of President Trump's expressed opinions on this issue, his assertion of them does not constitute deceit or trickery. Every elected, every official listed in the indictment unquestionably knew that election fraud and irregularities were and are vigorously disputed topics and that President Trump's opinion on the subject was just that, an opinion formed based on his view of the available information. Virtually every American, including the cited public officials, had similar access to much of this same information, including a mountain of publicly reported facts and opinions, which were the subject of wall-to-wall media coverage throughout the post-election period and beyond. Each official thus had every opportunity to form his or her own conclusions, just like President Trump. To assert that President Trump, as one voice among countless millions, was somehow capable of unilaterally tricking or deceiving these individuals, who include some of the most informed politicians on the planet, simply by advocating his opinions on this contentious issue, is beyond absurd. It is therefore entirely unsurprising that this type of conduct involving pure advocacy directed to public officials, bears no resemblance to cases in which courts have found deceit or trickery within the meaning of 371. Compare United States versus Milton, 1993. The defendant used position in EEOC and control of eligibility for claims over a certain settlement fund to solicit false claims for funds and take a share of the proceeds. In United States versus Baxter from 2014, the defendant used position as treasurer for the Washington Teachers Union to defraud the union of millions of dollars through signing fraudulent checks, writing checks to himself, using union credit card for personal expenses, and attempting to conceal the crimes by falsely allocating debits. In United States versus Cisneros from 1999, The defendant was indicted for deceiving the FBI and the Department of Justice to ensure his nomination to the cabinet position, uh, to a cabinet position, by repeatedly lying to the FBI in background interviews and concealing large payments to a blackmailer, and by similarly failing to pay gift tax on the payments as well as illegally structuring some of them to avoid filing a currency transaction report. Concord Management and Consulting. Uh, defendant was cited for inter alia, failing to report expenditures to the FEC or register as a foreign agent with DOJ, as well as making affirmative misrepresentations by submitting false statements on visa applications to DOS and destroying evidence to impede investigations and hiding foreign origins to avoid detection by regulators. In each such case, the defendant's conduct was based on concealment an exclusive control of information that raised the real risk that government officials might be deceived to the government's detriment. Here, in disputing the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, President Trump vigorously advocated his viewpoint on a widely disputed political controversy. Even if one disagrees with his view that the election was stolen, to advocate that view does not constitute trickery or deceit. As noted above, the implications of the prosecution's overbroad view of fraud is staggering. 
the prosecution's theory would criminalize a group of citizens who opposed mask mandates and insist to public officials that masks are ineffective in curbing the spread of COVID-19 and stoutly adhere to that view, even when shown CDC studies that supposedly contradict it. Such activists, in the prosecution's view, would be, quote, conspiring to defraud the United States by making supposedly false statements in an attempt to influence or obstruct government policies. Likewise, the prosecution's theory would criminalize advocates for criminal justice reform, who met with members of Congress and presented supposedly false statistics about the impact of incarceration on minority communities to advocate for the passage of a criminal justice reform bill. So long as prosecutors could allege that the advocates had reason to know the statistics were incorrect or were supposedly notified of that by government officials, those advocates could be charged with, quote, conspiring to defraud the United States under 371. Anyone who lobbies federal officials to act based on vigorously disputed, not readily verifiable facts faces the pall of prosecution and imprisonment up to 20 years under this theory of 18 18 USC 371, plainly suggesting it must be incorrect. Applied as the prosecution suggest, the statute would criminalize an enormous amount of ordinary, routine political activity by millions of American citizens, exalting the government's assessment of facts over our most sacred right to state our political opinions and make them known to our elected leadership. Damn, that was a good argument. That is a really good argument. They are making the case that, okay, if we just accept Jack Smith's architecture for charging a 371 offense, then we can criminalize basically every form of advocacy that is contentious. For this reason, in McDonald, the Supreme Court unanimously rejected a similarly expansive interpretation of 18 U.S.C. 201 that threatened to criminalize broad swaths of ordinary political interactions, including, quote, even the most commonplace request for assistance from citizens to public officials. McDonald versus United States from 2016. As in McDonald, so also here, quote, the government's position could... Uh, cast a pall of potential prosecution over these relationships as someone lobbying the government on a hotly disputed political issue might wonder if they would be prosecuted for taking a supposedly false position on a disputed political question and thus citizens with legitimate concerns might shrink from participating in democratic discourse. In short, 371 does not proscribe advocacy on political issues in the manner described in the indictment. As such, actions are neither deceit nor trickery and cannot be considered as such without improperly criminalizing vast swaths of the citizenry. Therefore, the indictment does not state an offense and should be dismissed. Now, allegedly false statements about the scope of the vice president's legal authority. This is going to be particularly interesting for me. Because I very strongly believe that Trump and Pence are engaged in kayfabe over the vice president's legal authority 
and their purpose was to uh, bait the Congress into clarifying the ECA and to making it more difficult to to challenge an election, which they did. They succeeded. So let's see what the argument is here. The indictment's allegations of supposedly false statements about the scope of the vice president's legal authority under the Constitution suffer from the same problems as the statements about the election's outcome, plus an additional problem. Quote, it is well settled as a general rule that fraud cannot be predicated upon misrepresentations of law or misrepresentations as to matters of law. Statements of domestic law are normally regarded as expressions of opinion, which are generally not actionable in fraud, even if they are false. And they reference Miller versus Yokohama Tire Company from 2004. Holding the held that a misrepresentation of law, misrepresentation of law, does not constitute fraud under the federal wire fraud statute. In Little versus Dufour Yachts from 2020, quote, the court fails to see how allegations of a misstatement of law as opposed to the mis to a misstatement of fact could ever constitute fraud. From Tronsgard versus FBL FBL Financial Group Incorporated. 2018, holding that misrepresentation of law are not actionable in fraud. These are disputed legal claims relating to a widely disputed political issue. Whatever one thinks of the scope of the vice president's authority, to advocate for a broad view of that authority does not constitute trickery or deceit. In fact, it was not until 2022 that Congress, for the first time in our history, sought to limit the vice president's duties in presiding over the electoral vote counting. Oh, and that's it. That's all they're going to say about it. Okay. Well, that doesn't, I was wondering if they were going to argue something that, um, knocked a hole in my, uh, Trump Pence kayfabe theory, but it does not whatsoever. Nope, not at all. Okay. Organizing and submitting contingent slates of electors. Next, the indictment alleges that President Trump was involved in organizing and submitting some contingent states of electors from disputed states to the President of the United States and the archivist of the United States. He was not involved in that. But the indictment does not allege any trickery or deceit in the submission of these alternate slates of electors to public officials. Failing to allege any trickery or deceit to federal officials in the submission of the alternate slates of electors. On the contrary, the indictment plainly and repeatedly alleges in at least three places that the submission of these electors did not involve any trickery or deceit. First, the indictment alleges that there was a clear difference in form between the state certified electors and the alternate slates of electors, and that this difference appeared on the face of the certificates submitted for the rival slates of electors, making the slates readily distinguishable to federal officials. Quote, Unlike those of the fraudulent electors, consistent with the ECA, the legitimate electors signed certificates were annexed to the state executive's office, state executive certificates of ascertainment before being sent to the president of the Senate and others. Next, the indictment alleges that when an unnamed, quote, agent of the defendant attempted to deliver alternate slates of electors to the vice president through a U.S. senator's office, both President Trump's agent and the senator's staff made clear that what was being submitted were alternate slates of electors, leading the vice president's staff to refuse to accept them. In my opinion, that was a trap. 
In my opinion, that was a trap that Trump and Pence did not fall for. On the morning of January 6th, an agent of the defendant, this is quoting from the indictment, I believe. On the morning of January 6th, an agent of the defendant contacted a United States senator to ask him to hand deliver documents to the vice president. The agent then facilitated the receipt by the senator's staff of the fraudulent certificates signed by the defendant's fraudulent electors in Michigan and Wisconsin, which were believed not to have been delivered to the vice president or archivist by mail. When one of the senator's staff contacted a staffer for the vice president by text message to arrange for delivery of the senator's staffer, um, had been told were, quote, alternate slates of electors from Michigan and Wisconsin because the archivist didn't receive them, the vice president staffer rejected them. Good. Good. That was a trap. Third, the indictment quotes from internal communications involving the alternate electors that make clear that, according to the plan, federal officials would be fully aware that these would be alternate slates of electors, not the electors certified by the relevant officials from the disputed states. The indictment alleges that a prospective elector stated, quote, his idea is basically that all of us, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona, Pennsylvania, etc., have our electors send in their votes, even though the votes aren't legal under federal law because they're not signed by the governor, so that members of Congress can fight about whether they should be counted on January 6th. They could potentially argue that they're not bound by federal law because they're Congress and make the law. Kind of a wild creative. I'm happy to discuss. My comment or my comment to him was that I guess there's no harm in it, legally at least. We would just be sending in fake electoral votes to Pence so that someone in Congress can make an objection when they start counting votes and start arguing that the fake votes should count. That was always such a bad idea. It was always such a bad idea. Thus, the alternate slates of electors were to be submitted on the understanding that members of Congress would fully understand that they are alternate electors and would debate whether the alternate electors should be certified. Well, Congress can't certify them. So it doesn't even make sense because Congress can't certify slates of electors. It's the state government that certifies the electors, which is why those were fake or illegitimate. The prosecution might think this approach was based on a baseless legal theory, which is not a basis for fraud. But the indictment does not allege any trickery or deceit in the submission of these electors to federal officials. Thus, there is no question that every relevant public official identified in the indictment fully understood which slate of electors the relevant states had certified. And no allegations in the indictment suggest that President Trump attempted to cast any doubt whatsoever on this issue. Rather, the indictment alleges that President Trump attempted to persuade officials to consider alternate slates of electors with notwithstanding any earlier certifications. This did not involve deceit or trickery as to the electors in and of themselves, but rather protected speech regarding the conduct of the election itself. Given this, it is clearly no accident that the indictment fails to allege trickery or deceit in the submission of the alternate slates of electors. It could not plausibly do so because the plan to submit alternate slates of electors was openly discussed by those involved and widely reported at the time. The Washington Post reported that those involved in organizing pro-Trump slates of electors in disputed states boasted publicly about the plan. Quote, in the weeks before January 6th, Trump supporters, not Trump, Trump supporters boasted publicly that they had submitted so-called fake electors on his behalf, but the Justice Department declined to investigate the matter in February 2021. 
That is from a Washington Post article. Indeed, the alternate elector plan was broadcast on nationwide media, touted on Fox News by President Trump's senior advisor, and subject to contemporaneous op-eds in the New York Times. That is true. It was a trap. To be sure, the indictment repeatedly attaches the labels fraudulent, fake, and sham to the alternate slates of electors. But it uses the words fraudulent and sham to mean legally unauthorized, not submitted through trickery or deceit. And of course, yeah, nobody was under the misunderstanding that these were anything but what they were. No, like there was no dispute over, oh, these are over here are also legitimate. Like that was not a thing. And of course, submitting legally unauthorized alternate electors cannot constitute fraud as a matter of law, especially not to highly sophisticated public officials represented by counsel, such as the vice president and the archivist of the United States. This is also a situation where Pence's book is very helpful because Pence's book makes every step of this clear. Allegedly false statements to the electors themselves. What is a big footnote? What is this? Do I need to read this footnote? It's quoting some articles. What was it a footnote to? It continues from here. Uh, it's from that New York Times article. Trump asked Pennsylvania House Speaker for help overturning election results, personally intervening in a third state. Washington Post, December 8th, 2020. And it says, reporting that President Trump called officials in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Georgia about replacing each slate's chosen slate of electors. Allison Durkee, Trump campaign assembling alternate electors. From Forbes, December 14th, 2020. It's about Stephen Miller describing alternate slates of electors and legal remedies remain open. Okay, I'll skip it. There was never any, there's no, oh, whoa, I accidentally clicked on it. There's no, um, there's no harm and there's nothing illegal about President Trump or members of his campaign or staff reaching out to elected officials in various states and saying, hey, can you guys do something about the fraud or would you guys consider sending in alternate slates of electors because we believe there's a lot of fraud and we believe that fraud should be investigated. So on the, on the chance that it is investigated, we might need alternate slates of electors ready to go. And um, there's nothing illegal about that at all. What is illegal is for somebody to try and disguise a slate of electors and say, this is actually the real legal authorized from that state slate of electors and you need to accept these instead of that other one you got. Okay. Allegedly false statements on the elect to the electors themselves. Next, the indictment alleges that one or more of the fraudulent electors may have been induced to participate in the plan through alleged false promises made by others, not the defendant. Footnote. The indictment does not allege that President Trump either made these statements or even knew that they were being made. Mm-hmm. Quote, when the defendant's electors expressed concern about signing certificates representing themselves as legitimate electors, co-conspirator one falsely assured them that their certificates would be used only if the defendant succeeded in litigation. I have forgotten who 
co-conspirator one is. Oh no, I have forgotten. Is it, is it, I don't think it's Corcoran. That's the docs case. Uh, oh my gosh, I've forgotten who co-conspirator one is. I knew it one time because I threaded it. Let me see if I can find my thread. I must know. Okay, that's a different indictment. That's a different indictment. I gotta scroll. Oh no, surely I have it written somewhere. Maybe I did it as CC1. Rudy. Is that right? Yeah, I think it is. August 2nd. Yeah, I think it's Rudy. No, wait. This looks like it's talking about... No, this is the Georgia case. Yeah, this is the Georgia case. It's not Rudy. This is the Georgia one. I think. No, it's not. No, it's this. This, this. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's this one. Case 123-00257. Rudy Eastman, Pal Clark, Cheesebro. Okay. Rudy falsely assured them that their certificates would be used only if the defendant succeeded in litigation alleging that the elector certificates were used, quote, contrary to how fraudulent electors were told they would be used. But even if this allegation were true, which it is not, and even if it somehow alleged trickery or deceit, it does not constitute defrauding the United States as the statute requires. Interesting. Okay, so this they're saying, look, Rudy never assured these people that uh, of this, this right here. Rudy, this is not a thing that Rudy said. Accordingly, they cannot constitute fraud against the United States. As the Supreme Court held in Tanner versus, versus United States, quote, the conspiracies criminalized by 371 are defined not only by the nature of the injury intended by the conspiracy and the method used to effectuate the conspiracy, but also and most importantly by the target of the conspiracy. Thus, an allegedly fraudulent, fraudulent misrepresentation directed and designed to induce reliance by a private third party does not constitute fraud against the United States. In fact, an interpretation that would criminalize defrauding a private third party under 371, quote, has not even an arguable basis in the plain language of 371. Unless the conspirator intends that the third party will relay the alleged misrepresentation to federal officials or the third party is acting as an agent of the federal government, neither of which is alleged here, no attempt to defraud the United States is at stake. C. Political advocacy conducted in public and the government official does not constitute obstructing or interfering with government function. Okay, political advocacy. For similar reasons, the indictment fails to allege any conduct that constitutes obstructing or interfering with a government function. 
political advocacy to public officials, even if the one lobbying them makes claims on widely disputed issues that federal officials deem to be false, does not constitute obstruction or interference within the meaning of 371. For 371 cases that go beyond the heartland of common law fraud, i.e. cheating the government out of money or property, the Supreme Court has adopted a narrowing construction of the statute that requires a showing of an attempt to obstruct or interfere with a lawful government function. Quote, to conspire to defraud the United States means primarily to cheat the government out of property or money, but it also means to interfere with or obstruct one of its lawful government functions by deceit or craft or trickery. The Supreme Court has stated, quote, stated repeatedly that the fraud covered by the statute reaches any conspiracy for the purpose of impairing, obstructing, or defeating the lawful function of any department of government. Thus, a defraud clause conspiracy requires four elements that one, the defendants entered in an, into an agreement to obstruct a lawful function of the government or an agency of the government three, by deceitful or dishonest means, and four, at least one overt act was taken in furtherance of the conspiracy. To obstruct means to place an obstacle in or fill the obstacles or impediments, or to hinder from passing action or operation, impede or retard. One does not obstruct Congress's operations by lobbying members of Congress to act in a certain way. On the contrary, such political advocacy is inherent and essential to the system. After all, conscientious public officials arrange meetings for constituents, contact other officials on their behalf, and include them in events all the time. The basic compact underlying representative government assumes that public officials will hear from their constituents and act appropriately on their concerns. The government's position could cast a pall of potential prosecution over these relationships, and a constituent does not obstruct government functions by asserting views on a widely reported, controversial topic that the prosecution does not share and thinks are false. On such widely disputed topics, members of Congress and other government officials have the full resources and opportunity to form their own opinions and draw their own conclusions. D, the statute should be construed narrowly to avoid criminalizing vast swaths of ordinary political activity and First Amendment protected speech. Several principles of statutory interpretation all support the same conclusion, that the conduct alleged in the indictment does not fall within 371 as a matter of law. First, courts routinely observe that 18 U.S.C. 371 is an extremely broad statute, and they interpret it narrowly in individual cases to offset its potential overbreadth. Unlike the mail and wire fraud statutes, which have been interpreted to incorporate elements of common law fraud, Section 371 has been interpreted to, quote, criminalize any willful impairment of a legitimate government function, whether or not the improper acts or objective are criminal under another statute. Precisely because it is so broad, to the point of raising serious vagueness concerns, courts adopt narrower and more cautious interpretations of 371 to foreclose novel applications of the statute, especially where those applications risk criminalizing ordinary conduct or political advocacy, which is the case here. As the Ninth Circuit holds, recognizing the broad scope of Section 371, we review indictments under it carefully and construe it narrowly. The Supreme Court, Supreme Court also likewise emphasized that, quote, indictments under the broad language 
of the general statute of 371 must be scrutinized carefully to have to as to each of the charged defendants because of the possibility that its wide net may ensnare the innocent as well as the culpable. This applies here where the prosecution advances an interpretation that would cast the wide net to ensnare large numbers of people engaging in perfectly ordinary conduct. The canon of constitutional avoidance. Second, the court must construe 371 narrowly to avoid the grave constitutional questions that criminalize the charged conduct would the questions that criminalizing the charged conduct would raise under the First Amendment. As discussed in President Trump's separately filed motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds and incorporated by reference here, all the alleged conduct constitutes First Amendment protected speech, advocacy, and association. And the application of the statute in this context violates the fair notice requirement of the due process clause. We read some of that in the last one. Accordingly, applying the statute to this conduct would at the very least raise grave constitutional questions. Quote, where an otherwise acceptable construction of a statute would raise serious constitutional problems, the court will construe the statute to avoid such problems unless such construction is plainly contrary to the intent of Congress. The elementary rule is that every reasonable construction must be con resorted to in order to save a statute from unconstitutionality. This approach not only reflects the prudential concern that constitutional issues not be needlessly up confronted, but also recognizes that Congress, like this court, is bound by and swears an oath to uphold the Constitution. The courts will therefore not lightly assume that Congress intended to infringe constitutionally upon protected liberties. That is from, okay, that quote right there is from... Edward J. DeBartolo Corporation versus Florida Gulf Coast Building and Construction Trades Council from 1988. But I like what that says because it's saying the elementary rule is that when you have a statute that you are applying, you should apply it in a way that does not bring into question its constitutionality. Basically saying that the Constitution narrows every statute because you're not supposed to interpret the statute in a way that would make it unconstitutional. And then this is from Clark versus Martinez in 2005, holding that this canon of interpretation, quote, is a tool for choosing between competing plausible interpretations of a statutory text, resting on the reasonable presumption that Congress did not intend the alternative which raises serious constitutional doubts. Here, for the reasons discussed above, the interpretation of 371 does not criminalize President Trump's alleged conduct and, by extension, the conduct of millions and millions of, of other American citizens is at least plausible. By contrast, the prosecution's alternate interpretation would raise grave constitutional concerns. In fact, it would criminalize conduct directly protected by the First Amendment. Next, the prosecution's interpretation creates fatal vagueness problems. Likewise, the narrower interpretation of the statute is necessary to avoid fatal vagueness problems. If, as the prosecution contends, 
any statement made in the course of advocating one's position to federal officials on a hotly disputed political topic may constitute a, quote, conspiracy to defraud the United States. So long as the prosecution later deems the statement false, the statute fails to satisfy the basic precepts of due process. See Part 3 of President Trump's motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds. This interpretation, if adopted, would render the statute unconstitutionally vague because it would not provide fair notice of the conduct prohibited and would lend itself to arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement as the present case demonstrates. Quote, to satisfy due process, a penal statute must define the criminal offense with sufficient def- definite definitus. Wait, 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 wait. Why is that word throwing me off? Def- What is this word? Definiteness? With sufficient definiteness? I have never read this word. I'm aware with definite, definite, definitive, definiteness. Sorry, tripping a bit. With sufficient definiteness or definiteness. (laughs) This is such a weird word. Like that's, it doesn't seem like definite and this should go together. Definiteness. <laughs> the ordinary people can understand <laughs> what conduct is prohibited. Well, ordinary people need to understand that word. That is, I do not like that word. And in a manner that does not encourage arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement. <laughs> Sorry, I just, I just find that word amusing and also... It just doesn't seem like it would go together. All right. Quoting Colander versus Lawson from 1983. Quote, the void for vagueness doctrine embraces these requirements. An interpretation that leaves the statute's outer boundaries ambiguous and effectively grants prosecution wide discretion to determine what conduct is criminal is unconstitutionally vague. Quote, Rather than construe the statute in a manner that leaves its outer boundaries ambiguous and involves the federal government in setting standards of disclosure and good government for local and state officials, we read 1341 as limited in scope to the protection of property rights. If Congress desires to go further, it must speak more clearly than it has. As discussed in more detail in President Trump's motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds, if interpreted to cover the charge conduct, the statute violates due process. Next, the rule of lenity and restraint favor a narrower interpretation. It is well established that, quote, ambiguity, ambiguity, ambiguity concerning the ambit of criminal statute should be resolved in favor of lenity. I'm going to start saying things all weird. It's going to be tomato, tomato, syllophus on the syllable, emphasis. Like, I'm just going to, instead of saying, like, I'm just going to, this is going to screw me all up. I'm going to start being the Riddler. The Supreme Court has repeatedly applied the rule of lenity to prevent overbroad applications of federal fraud statutes. Further dispelling doubt on this point is the familiar principle that ambiguity concerning the ambit of criminal statutes should be resolved in favor of lenity. We resist the government's less constrained construction, absent Congress clear instruction otherwise. 
If Congress desires to go further, it must speak more clearly than it has. The rule of lenity provides that where two interpretations of a criminal statute are available. Okay, this is the real meat right here. This, this is the real meat of everything that we're going through, all of my silliness aside. The rule of lenity provides that where two interpretations of a criminal statute are available, the court must adopt the one that favors the criminal defendant. Likewise, the principle of restraint in interpreting criminal statutes calls for the adoption of a less harsh alternative. Quote, thus, the Supreme Court has stressed repeatedly that when choice has to be made between two readings of what conduct Congress has made a crime, it is appropriate, before we choose the harsher alternative, to require that Congress should have spoken in language that is clear and definite. In Cleveland, this would be, we just quoted Dowling versus United States. The other one is Cleveland. Okay. In the Cleveland case, the Supreme Court held that the federal mail fraud statute could not be applied to a scheme to procure a state video poker license through false statements to a state agency. In applying the rule of lenity, the court emphasized that the rule prevents an interpretation that, quote, would appear to arm federal prosecutors with power to police false statements in an enormous range of submissions to state and local authorities. The court declined to attribute to 1341 a purpose so encompassing where Congress has not made such a design clear. The same reasoning applies here. The prosecution's interpretation would appear to arm federal prosecutors with power to police false statements in an enormous range of communications with federal and state officials. The rule of lenity counsels against such an interpretation. Yeah, Pura Vida, I agree. I think that they have been researching this stuff for years and being ready for this moment. I think this is all design. This case is design. Um, all of Jack Smith's cases, I think, are by design. Uh, by white hat design is what I mean. A wild boar, yeah, I agree. Look at this. I'm agreeing with wild boar. Mark the calendar. Trump's lawyers seem on it. They do. They're making really good arguments, no matter how I pronounce them. Regardless of where I put the emphasis on the syllable, they are making good arguments. 18 U.S.C. 1001's legislative advocacy exclusion precludes an interpretation of 371 that would prohibit such advocacy. The wholly false premise of the indictment is that President Trump made allegedly false statements to congressional officials, including Vice President Pence in his capacity as President of the Senate, to induce official action that would alter or delay congressional certification. Yet conspicuously absent from the indictment is any charge under the federal false statement statute. Boom. Boom. The reason why becomes clear when examining the plain text of this statute, which expressly excludes any purportedly false statements regarding, quote, any matter within the jurisdiction of the legislative branch, except two non-applicable exceptions for one, administrative matters, 
or two, any investigation or review conducted pursuant to the authority of any committee, committee, subcommittee, commission or office of the Congress consistent with the applicable rules of the House or Senate, 18 U.S.C. 1001. The purpose of this broad exclusion is plain. Although Congress may have a specific need to regulate statements made, typically under oath, to its committees, broadly proscribing all allegedly false statements made to legislators would potentially criminalize vast swaths of speech and conflict and conflict with the First Amendment's guarantee that citizens may petition our leaders for a redress of grievances. That is a guarantee that always applies, no matter how much our leaders or other government officials disagree with such grievances or believe they are baseless. It is a, quote, fundamental canon of statutory construction that the words of a statute must be read in their context and with a view to their place in the overall statutory scheme. A court must therefore interpret the statute as a symmetrical and coherent regulatory scheme and fit, if possible, all parts into an, har- into an harmonious whole. Similarly, the meaning of one statute may be affected by other acts, particularly where Congress has spoken subsequently and more specifically to the topic at hand. Here, the prosecution asked the court to ignore 1001's place in the regulatory scheme and conclude that, notwithstanding the Congress's direct exclusion of legislatively directed statements, strained interpretations of other statutes. All right, we got a footnote here that I missed earlier. It is from this first paragraph, and it says, As certification of the Electoral College votes are neither an investigation or review, nor a process conducted by a committee, subcommittee, commissioner, office of Congress, the statute does not apply. And hence, the prosecution did not and could not charge President Trump under 1001. Hmm. All right, so if you're not catching on, what, what Trump's attorneys are saying is that Trump allegedly made false statements to Congress, um, to elected officials and other officials, yet he is not charged under 18 U.S.C. 1001, which is a statute used to charge people for false statements to elected officials and government officials. Uh, such as what, I mean, Danchenko was charged with 1001, Sussman was charged 1001, Michael Flynn was charged 1001, bunch of people. It's like a catch-all thing where, like, you say one thing that's slightly wrong to an FBI agent, and you can be charged and rung up for five years prison for uh, a a false statement. Yet, President Trump allegedly made a bunch of false statements, according to Jack Smith, yet he is not charged under 1001. And the reason is that certification of the Electoral College votes are neither an investigational review nor a process conducted by a committee, subcommittee, etc. The statute doesn't apply here. Hence, the prosecution did not and could not charge Trump under 1001. The prosecution asked the court to ignore 1001's place in the regulatory scheme and conclude that, notwithstanding the Congress's direct exclusion of legislatively directed statements, strained interpretations of other statutes, none of which have any direct application, may nonetheless criminalize the same alleged conduct. The court should reject this argument. Congress, for good reasons, chose to limit 1001's reach 
Other more general statutes, including 371 and all others charged, must be interpreted interpreted with this limitation in mind. So there's his attorneys are making a brilliant argument here. They're saying, look, the special counsel is aware they can't charge Trump under 1001 because he isn't he is um because the elect the electoral college process is not an investigation and review. There's no investigation here that he's obstructing and making false statements with or about. And because the special counsel chooses to not charge under 1001 because the circumstances, the context of the statements mean that that statute does not apply, it should also be extrapolated that these other statutes did not apply in this situation because this is a situation where it's, there's presidential immunity, there's constitutional immunity, and he's engaged in constitutionally protected activity such as lobbying members of Congress, advocating for his constituents, encouraging people to do their job, like all political speech, advocacy for his own campaign, like all of this. It's all it's all federally protected activities. Good morning, Mermaid Miss K. Thank you for the late fee. I appreciate it. I will throw it in my coffee jar. E.H. Kyle, good morning to you as well. TVT, also good morning to you. Razor Sharp, good morning. Okay, next section. Counts two and three should be dismissed because the indictment fails to allege an offense under 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2 or K. Count two of the indictment alleges conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding under 18 U.S.C. 1512 K. Count three of the indictment alleges obstruction and attempted obstruction of an official proceeding under 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2. Section 1512 was enacted as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act of 2002 in response to the Enron scandal to close a loophole in federal criminal law on evidence tampering. Quote, Congress enacted 1512C2 as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, which, quote, was prompted by the exposure of Enron's massive accounting fraud and revelations that the company's outside auditor, Arthur Anderson, LLP, had systematically destroyed potentially incriminating documents. Um, I believe Chris Ray was on the Enron thing. Quote, the Enron prosecutions revealed a critical gap in the U.S. code. The then current version of 1512B prohibited a defendant from persuading another person to destroy records in connection with an investigation or other proceeding, but imposed no liability on those who personally destroyed evidence. Thus, the indictment takes a statute directly directed at the destruction of records in accounting fraud and applies it to the disputing the outcome of a presidential election. Ooh. This stretches the statutory language beyond any plausible mooring to its text, which violates the canons of avoidance, lenity, and restraint discussed above. Section 1512C2 provides that, quote, whoever corruptly obstructs influences or impedes an official proceeding or attempts to do so commits a felony offense. The court of appeals really had, um, they had an important case on this corruptly thing recently. 18 U.S. I covered it on this program. 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2. Um, okay. No section 1512 K provides that quote, whoever conspires to commit any offense under this section, 
shall be subject to the same penalties as those prescribed for the offense, the commission of which was the object of the conspiracy. Counts two and three fail as a matter of law because the indictment does not properly allege that President Trump acted corruptly or that his conduct attempted to conspire to or did obstruct or impede the 2021 election certification proceedings in Congress. First, the indictment does not allege any conduct that could could constitute obstructing or impeding an official proceeding. As noted above, to obstruct means to place an obstacle in or fill with obstacles or impediments, or to hinder from passing action or operation, impede or to retard. To impede means virtually the same thing as to obstruct, to interfere with or get in the way of the progress of, hold up or block. The definition of obstruct makes clear the virtual identity of meaning by the defining by defining obstruct in terms of impede, to fill with impediments or to impede. Uh, footnote. The statute also uses the word influence, but the indictment charges only that President Trump conspired to, quote, obstruct and impede an official proceeding, and that he attempted to and did corruptly obstruct and impede an official proceeding. It does not allege that he conspired to, attempted to, or did influence an official proceeding. In any event, the verb influence is sandwiched on a list of verbs between the two other verbs of near identical meaning, obstruct and impede. Under the canon non-satur a socius, I I have never seen that before. What is this? We're going to have to learn what it is together. Bear BL, thank you very much for the rumble rant. Much appreciated. Have a great day. Okay. Nosotur a socius or socius. I don't know how to say it. I took Greek, not Latin. Nosotur a soseus. That's like it says soseus. Okay, it's a doctrine or rule of construction, the meaning of an unclear or ambiguous word, as in a statute or contract, should be determined by considering the words in which it is associated in the context. Don't take things out of context. That's what it means. It is part of a longer Latin maxim, which I will not attempt to pronounce, which means that sometimes you can understand someone better by looking at who they associate with. Oh, I kind of like that. I will butcher the pronunciation if I try, but... Just like I butchered pronunciation as pronunciation. <laughs> My English teacher wife would have something to say about that. All right, as discussed above... Lobbying members of Congress and state officials to act in a certain way when they conduct an official proceeding does not obstruct or impede that official proceeding. Nothing about lobbying Congress to act a certain way places an obstacle or impediments, hinders from action, gets in the way of the progress of, holds up, or blocks Congress from acting. On the contrary, lobbying Congress to act in a certain way presupposes that Congress will conduct an official proceeding and it seeks to persuade Congress to act in a certain way during that official proceeding. That is the antithesis of obstructing or impeding the proceeding. 
the canons of interpretation that apply to 18 USC 371 discussed above equally uh, apply equally to section 1512. That's right, John Otter. It means context matters. Over on Pilled, you have it exactly right in simple terms. Context matters. That is right. The canons of interpretation, blah, blah, blah. The canon of, the canon of constitutional avoidance instructs that the statute should be interpreted to avoid criminalizing First Amendment protected speech and activity. The narrower interpretation of 1512 avoids potentially fatal vagueness and fair notice problems. The rules of lenity and restraint counsel in favor of the narrower interpretation as well. And 1001's more specific exclusion of legislative lobbying foreclosures, a general interpretation of 1512 that would include such conduct. By contrast, the, prosecu the prosecution's alternative interpretation that someone who lobbies Congress to act based on views and opinions that prosecution disfavors is somehow obstructing and impeding Congress is novel and unprecedented, and it again threatens to criminalize broad swaths of ordinary political activity. On the prosecution's view, an activist who lobbied Congress to oppose COVID va vaccine mandates on the grounds that the vaccines do not prevent the spread of COVID would be obstructing Congress <laughs> and committing a felony punishable by 20 years if the government deems such views false, which it has. As McDonald instructs, such interpretations that cast the pall of criminal prosecution over ordinary lobbying activities should be avoided. Next, the indictment does not allege that President Trump acted corruptly. On October 20th, 2023, oh, here's that case I was talking about that we co we covered this on the show, but ooh, we missed we missed this from October 20th because I was out. On October 20th, 2023, the DC Circuit issued its opinion in United States versus Robertson, which addresses the meaning of the word corruptly in section 1512. That opinion confirms that the indictment here is deficient in failing to properly allege that President Trump acted corruptly. In Robertson, the court held that corruptly, quote, must be construed according to its plain meaning, and that there are a range of ways to prove a defendant's corrupt intent or action, and that a jury could find that a defendant acted corruptly based on evidence that he used felonious, unlawful means to obstruct, impede, or influence the Electoral College vote certification. Relying on the Supreme Court's opinion in Arthur Anderson LLP versus United States, that's in that's Enron, and the D.C. Circuit's opinion in United States versus North from 1990, Robertson held that corruptly means quote wrongful, immoral, depraved, or evil, or depraved evil perverted into a state of moral weakness or wickedness. Robertson held that the proof of corrupt intent or action may vary depending on circumstances, including the nature of the proceeding and the nature of the defendant's actions and purpose. But Robertson took pains to emphasize that lobbying government officials and similar political activities, i.e. trying to convince government officials to act in accord with one's preferences, does not fall within the definition of corruptly, Quote, to assert that all endeavor, endeavors to influence, obstruct, or impede the proceedings of a congressional committees are, as a matter of law, corrupt, would undoubtedly criminalize some innocent behavior. 
That is because congressional committees are part and parcel of a political branch of a government that is engaged in making legislative policy choices. It is thus commonplace for people, such as lobbyists, protesters, and constituents, to lawfully attempt in innumerable ways to obstruct or impede congressional committees. Thus, the corruptly element protects non-couplable conduct, such as lobbyists and protesters exercising their rights to influence a congressional committee hearing from being swept up by the state's broad prohibition on obstructing influence or impeding an official proceeding. Those cases confirm, moreover, that the requirement that a defendant act corruptly is met by establishing that the defendant acted with a corrupt purpose or via independently corrupt means, and that test that test encompasses actions where the defendant acts through independently unlawful means. The means themselves are independently criminal, such as, as in Robertson, where the defendant allegedly assaulted police officers with a dangerous weapon in attempting to obstruct an official proceeding. Quote, the ordinary meaning of the word corruptly in 18 U.S.C. 1512 C2 encompasses acting through independently unlawful means. Importantly, the corrupt purpose and corrupt means test cannot be satisfied by simply pointing to lobbying and similar political activities, even whether the defendant advocated a viewpoint that the prosecution disfavors. The element of corrupt intent or action, as we construe, it protects the rights of peaceful uh, advocacy and protest, i.e. the legitimate efforts of lobbyists and protesters to influence policymaking or to express political views do not fit the ordinary meaning of corruptly. This is so even in the case of protesters who passionately but lawfully voice displeasure, suspicion, or outrage over election results. By the same reasoning, Corruptly does not extend to persons lobbying government officials who, quote, voice suspicion or outrage over election results, which is exactly what the indictment charges against President Trump. The indictment alleges, in effect, that President Trump engaged in a, quote, peaceful effort to convince. Wait a minute. in a peaceful effort to convince members of Congress to raise objections to the vote certification, which Robertson explicitly states is not covered by the statute, even when the objectors voice suspicion and outrage over the election results. Any broader reading of corruptly in this context, moreover, is constitutionally untenable and must be eschewed under the canons of avoidance, lenity, and restraint. As noted in President Trump's motion to dismiss the indictment based on constitutional grounds, President Trump and others have a First Amendment right to state that the election was stolen and advocate for members of Congress and other government officials to act in accordance with that view. Criminalizing such advocacy under Section 1512 would raise grave constitutional questions, to say the least, and such an interpretation should be rejected. As noted above, the rules of lenity and restraint also favor the narrower interpretation. As a matter of law, such political activity cannot be viewed as, quote, wrongful, immoral, depraved, or evil. No matter how much the prosecution disapproves the viewpoint expressed.
Further, if the holding of Robertson is broadened to include political advocacy based on disputed viewpoints on political questions that the prosecution disfavors, the statute would be incurably vague and violate principles of due process. To be sure, Robertson stated that, quote, there are a range of ways to prove a defendant's corrupt intent or or action. That proof of corrupt intent or action may vary depending on circumstances, and there are multiple ways to prove that a defendant acted corruptly. But these statements cannot be construed as a blank check to authorize prosecutors to criminalize any lobbying and political activities based on the prosecution's view that the viewpoints advocated are supposedly immoral or false. If the word corruptly is so broad that it is limited only by the imagination of the criminally inclined, then the statute fails to provide fair notice of the conduct proscribed and and it is incurably vague. Thus, Robertson's caution against applying the statute to criminalize efforts of lobbyists and protesters to influence policymaking or to express political views must be taken seriously and given and given full effect to avoid rendering the statute unconstitutional in this context. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna break this down just a bit, like simplify it just a bit, because we um we just got a bit dense there, right? That was kind of dense, but I'm familiar with this Robertson case and we covered it on this show. Um, I think I first covered it back last March or April, if I remember right, but it it was definitely in the springtime, I think. Um, But I was really interested in that case. In fact, I can, in my mind, I can see the, the political article that was talking about it Um, because that DC circuit court, um, they the hearing they had for that case really intrigued me um because at issue was that word corruptly in order to charge people under that 1512 statute it they have to have acted corruptly in whatever they did meaning they had some evil intent they had so as it as it just defined it here um something immo- they had to it had to be immoral it had to be evil. It had to be, um, where was, where was that? Where is that list? I just read wrongful, immoral, depraved, or evil. And this matters because the reason I care about this and I cared about this case back then, um, is because this could undo the 1512 charges against hundreds of J six defendants because those who have been convicted of violating this 1512 statute, the prosecution argued that they acted corruptly in obstructing the joint session of Congress. If their defense attorneys can take this ruling by the, by this, by the DC court, by the third circuit or whatever, they might be able to use it and say, look, this 1512 statute was applied erroneously to my defendant. The circuit court has ruled on this and my defendant did not act wrongfully, immorally, depravedly, depravedly or evilly in their actions of stepping on the Capitol grounds or walking through the Capitol building, especially if their defendant committed no other criminality that day. They simply followed the crowd Maybe at the, maybe they got waved in by 
by um, Capitol Police. Maybe they walked around with a police officer just feet away from them, and then they left. If that is the behavior they gave in, yes, the consequence of it was that they joined in with a group whose actions that day actually obstructed the joint session of Congress. They caused the joint session of Congress to have to pause and for lawmakers to have to leave the joint session only to reconvene several hours later. Yes, that they, yes, they did that, but they did not act corruptly. And so that their charge, their 1512 charge should be thrown out. They were wrongfully convicted of this 1512 charge. And that is my hope and has been my prayer for this Robertson case that they would define corruptly in a way that would give those J6 defendants an angle to argue against that charge and get it lifted, which could free or at least lighten the sentence of hundreds of J6 defendants. Now, one of the problems with the Robertson case, as this, um, as this filing articulated much earlier here, is that the Robertson case involves someone who assaulted a police officer, which obviously is corrupt. Obviously, assaulting a police officer with a deadly weapon to boot um, is wrong, is immoral, is depraved, and is evil. I think we would all agree on that. And this, the the court of the the court in hearing the oral arguments, um, I think it was the oral arguments said that they wished for a case that did not involve an assault. And that that might be what they really needed to uh, to get a better definition of corruptly. But I don't know. I don't know if they've if they've gotten one or if this will be, this will suffice. But my sincere prayer, and I've had and I've been hoping for this and praying for this ever since I learned about this case, is that it would lead to the lifting of charges against hundreds of J six defendants. Um, and it is hundreds, hundreds of J six defendants have been convicted under this 1512. So, I don't know if any efforts are underway with that. I don't know. I would hope so. There might be a lot of J6 defendants who have given up, but hopefully they find out about this and they have good lawyers who would argue it. Okay, where did we get to? Okay, count four of the indictment should be dismissed. Count four fails as a matter of law for several reasons. First, President Trump was lawfully exercising his rights under the Electoral Count Act and lawful. By the way, I think I explained that right. Like everybody understood how this, I mean, I, I explained how this corruptly thing might help J6 defendants, but I hope everybody understood why they're bringing it up here in regards to President Trump because he's been charged with 1512 also. And pres- it can't be argued that President Trump acted corruptly. So in making, it's kind of neat in making this defense of Trump against his 1512 charge, they are at the same time arguing a defense or uh, putting forth a defense of hundreds of J six defendants against their being charged under section 1512. Kind of neat, kind of neat. President Trump's defense is the J six defend defendants uh, defense, right? All right. Count four of the indictments should be dismissed. 
Count four fails as a matter of law for several reasons. First, President Trump was lawfully exercising his rights under the Electoral Count Act and lawful exercise of his own civil rights cannot violate 18 U.S.C. 241. Second, President Trump did not have fair notice that he was interfering with a constitutionally protected right by seeking to examine and preserve election fraud challenges. Third, the indictment fails to plead that President Trump acted with the specific intent to interfere with another's constitutional rights. For these reasons, count four should be dismissed. President Trump's lawful exercise of his own civil rights does not violate 241. Count four incorporates by reference the allegations and indictments, paragraphs one through four and eight. Based on these factual allegations, the indictment charges President Trump with conspiracy to, quote, injure, oppress, threaten, and intimidate one or more persons to, in the right to vote and to have one's vote counted. That's right, Mermaid. Um, of all the lawyers I know about shipwrecked, um, Bill Shipley or shipwreck crew on X, is uh, he's doing work for free for some like, I don't know how many defendants he's working for free, but it's a number of them. I think he's working on behalf of over 20 J6 defendants, maybe over 30 now. He has a fund set up and people have contributed to it and he's doing really good work. Um, he, he's, he's, he's been doing really good work. And um, also he's been very, I I don't agree with ship. I'm just going to say a word about shipwreck crew on Twitter. I don't agree with him on everything, but I find him to be very, very well reasoned. And, uh, his take on the J6 tapes release, while very unpopular, I think was sound. And I think it was spot on. Um, I, I, I like Shipwreck Crew. I, I really do. I respect him a lot. And uh, I really respect his work that he's doing for J6 defendants. Okay. The Supreme Court, quote, has repeatedly said that the essence of a conspiracy is an agreement to commit an unlawful act. Quote, to prove a conspiracy charge, the government must show that the defendant agreed to engage in a criminal activity and knowingly participated in the conspiracy with the intent to commit the offense, as well as that at least one as well as that at least one overt act must act took place in furtherance of the conspiracy. I don't know why I'm stumbling. Sorry. That's from United States versus Hemphill. Based on this clear precedent, an indictment cannot succeed without an agreement to commit an unlawful act. No agreement to commit an unlawful act is identified in the indictment. The indictment recognizes that president Trump had the right to speak publicly about the election, to raise concerns about election fraud, to claim election victory, and to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means. As set forth in President Trump's separate motion to dismiss on the basis of presidential immunity, all of the indictment's factual allegations relating to President Trump involved him lawfully carrying out his presidential duties. They were also protected by the First Amendment for the reasons discussed in President Trump's motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds. Without the agreement to commit an unlawful act, count four fails as a matter of law. For these reasons, both count four and all the conspiracy claims in the indictment fail as a matter of law. 
Next, President Trump did not have fair notice that lawfully contesting the election could be prosecuted as a civil rights violation. As discussed in part three of President Trump's motion to dismiss based on constitutional grounds, quote, a criminal statute must give fair warning of the conduct it makes a crime. The underlying principle is that no man shall be held criminally responsible for conduct which he could not reasonably understand to be proscribed. That is from United States v. Harris, 1954. With respect to 18 U.S.C. 241, criminal liability, quote, may be imposed for deprivation of a constitutional right if, but only if, in, in the light of pre-existing law, the unlawfulness under the Constitution is apparent. That is from United States versus Lanier, 1997. The Supreme Court has compared the fair warning standard to the clearly established standard applied to civil cases under 1983 or Bivens cases. To be clearly established, quote, existing precedent must have placed a statutory or constitutional question beyond debate. That is Ashcroft versus Al Kid, 2011. In 2020, no court decision had stated that contesting an election through lawful means, including by public statements or court challenges or alternate sites of electors, was unconstitutional or an infringement of the right to vote or to have one's vote counted. To be sure, in a previous contested presidential election, the Supreme Court concluded, quote, the individual citizen has no federal constitutional right to vote for electors for the president of the United States unless and until the state legislature chooses a statewide election as the means to implement its power to appoint members of the Electoral College. That is from Bush v. Gore, 2000. But the court did not consider whether either then-Governor Bush or then-Vice President Gore had individually infringed any constitutional rights under criminal or civil law by using lawful means to advance their interests through post-election activities. Quote, None are more conscious of the vital limits on judiciary, judicial authority than are the members of this court, and none stand more in admiration of the Constitution's design to leave the selection of the president to the people through their legislators legislatures, and to the political sphere. To the contrary, the court indicated that the parties had taken an appropriate route to resolve the dispute. Quote, when contending parties invoke the process of the courts, however, it becomes our unsought responsibility to resolve the federal and constitutional issues the judicial system has been forced to confront. Historic precedent in close and contested elections supports the lawfulness of the actions alleged in the indictment. For example, in the disputed elections of 1876 and 1960, competing slates of electors were sent to Congress. They were both legal sets. Based on the earlier certificate certified results in Hawaii in 1960, the Republican electors met and cast their three votes for Nixon. The Democratic electors also met and cast their votes for Kennedy, even though they did not have a certificate of election from the state. In 1800, Vice President Jefferson unilaterally made the decision to accept questionable electoral votes from Georgia that favored him. Bruce Ackerman and David Fontana, How Jefferson Counted Himself, 2004. And in 1960, Vice, Vice President Nixon himself a candidate, decided which competing slate of electors to accept from Hawaii. I, I don't agree with that. 
he was told he was asked by Hawaii to accept the other slate of electors. That is that is not entirely true, Mr. Attorneys. Vice President Nixon, sitting as the presiding officer of the Joint Convention of the Two Houses, suggested that the electors named in the certificate of the governor dated January 4th, 1961, be considered the lawful electors from Hawaii. There was no objection to the president's suggestion. That is true, and he did that at the behest of the government um, of Hawaii, who contacted him and Congress and said, we did a recount. We have another slate of electors. They are legal authentic and we have sent them to you that is the slate of electors we want to be counted and that's what vice president nixon did was he counted them and he said i don't know if it's going to mention it here but nixon said at the time this is not to be considered precedent that he had chosen them people keep leaving that out in the 2000 election contest, three Supreme Court justices pointed to the Hawaii situation in 1960 to emphasize that competing slates of electors could be submitted to Congress and that Congress could make the decision on which slate to accept. Then here's a quote. But as I have already noted, those provisions of the Electoral Count Act merely provide rules of decision for Congress to follow when selecting among conflicting states slates of electors. They do not prohibit a state from counting what the majority concedes to be legal votes until a bona fide winner is determined. Indeed, in 1960, Hawaii appointed two slates of electors and Congress chose to count the one appointed on January 4th, 1961, well after the Title III deadlines. Boom. I'm glad it said it. I'm glad it included that because it's important to note that the slates of electors from Hawaii were appointed slates of electors from the government of Hawaii. They were both legal slates of electors who both, both slates went through a legal process. It was all correct. And that's why they were actually competing. It wasn't a, a legitimate one and an alternate one. There was no alternate one. It was two, com two slates of electors, both completely legitimate, but one of them was sent past the deadline after the recount had finished and the results were changed and <clears throat> they notified the government of Hawaii notified, they didn't try and sneak this in. They didn't have some person try and reach out to a Senator to hand it over to vice president Nixon on the day of the counting. It was all done legally. And so in the end, Nixon didn't really have a choice. Okay. Courts have rejected prosecutions under 18 USC 241 for election related issues that did not have that did not have clearly established federal constitutional protection. For example, the Supreme Court affirmed dismissal of an indictment based on alleged bribery of voters, United States versus Bathgate in 1918. In another case, the 7th Circuit reversed a conviction for interfering in a local election. United States versus Bradbury 1975. No matter what the courts thought of the conduct involved, they dismissed the prosecutions because the defendant did not have fair notice that the alleged actions would violate federally protected constitutional rights. Thus, at the time of the allegations in the indictment, the only relevant judicial precedent from 2000 treated post-election challenges as lawful. It included a dissent arguing that competing elector slates could be submitted to Congress for Congress to decide which to accept. Furthermore, 
the actions listed in the indictment had been performed in, among others, 1800, 1876, and 1960, without any suggestion they were violating constitutionally protected rights. The issue certainly had not been placed beyond debate. For these reasons, President Trump did not have fair notice that lawfully contesting the election could be prosecuted as a civil rights violation. In fact, prosecuting him on the ground specified in the indictment stretches the statutory language beyond any recognizable bounds. Count four should be dismissed. The indictment does not charge necessary specific intent. Section 241 requires proof of specific intent to violate constitutional right. Bray versus Alexandria Women's Health Clinic, 1993. Quote, it is established that since the, gra- the gravamen of the offense under 241 is conspiracy, the prosecution must show that the offender acted with a specific intent to interfere with the federal rights in question. A specific intent to interfere with a federal right must be alleged in the indictment. Wilkins versus United States, 1967. Because of the specific intent requirement, not every conspiracy affecting an individual's constitutional rights is within 18 U.S.C. 241, United States versus Guest, 1966. For example, quote, a conspiracy to rob an interstate traveler would not of itself violate 241. Likewise, the alleged conspiracy to contest the 2020 election does not of itself violate 18 U.S.C. 241. Instead, the prosecution must show that President Trump specifically intended to interfere with someone's constitutional right to vote. The prosecution has failed to allege President Trump's specific intent, and thus count four should be dismissed. Furthermore, to prove the charge under 18 U.S.C. 241, the prosecution must prove that President Trump acted to accomplish a governmental purpose. United States versus Ehrlichman, 1976. Ehrlichman involved a charge under 18 U.S.C. 241 against a Watergate conspirator. The D.C. Circuit explained that it is, quote, not a violation of Section 241 for individuals who happen to be government agents to burglarize a doctor's office for purely personal gain. It is a civil rights conspiracy in violation of that section, however, if they enter his office in their capacity as government agents without proper authorization to secure information for an ostensible government purpose. Importantly, quote, the objective must be governmental, even though Section 241, unlike Section 242, does not require the conspirators act under color of law. The states can deal with those who kill or mug or burglarize out of passion or greed for purely personal reasons. To convict President Trump under 18 U.S.C. 241, then, the prosecution must prove that President Trump took post-election actions to accomplish a governmental objective and not for any personal gain. Proving this, however, directly implicates presidential immunity. Accordingly, the prosecution's charge under 18 U.S.C. 241 will fail because it did not prove action for a governmental objective, or it will fail because proving a governmental objective will confirm that the charge is barred under presidential immunity. It's a total catch-22 legally. Either way, the prosecution's claim under 18 U.S.C. 241 cannot prevail. In any event, the indictment itself is not neutral in this point. It plainly alleges that President Trump acted for personal reasons, not government reasons. So it contradicts itself. 
Count four is therefore deficient on its face. The court should dismiss the indictment with prejudice. Signed Todd Blanche, Emil Bove, John Loro, Gregory Singer, Philza Pavillon. They're doing great work. I know that was really, I know that was dense. It wasn't as dense at first, but this last half of it got dense. Uh, but really good. I think up, up front, that first like dozen pages, really, really strong arguments that were very easy to understand. The rest of it got, got legally dense. But was also good. Sean Joe, thank you for the cookie. Filter Dog, also thank you for the shades and the cookie. Yeah, me too. I hope I hope this 1512, um, this corruptly decision helps Jay Sixers. I'm gonna look into it after the show. I'll spend some time trying to see if there's any defendants who are taking up that decision or if there's any case in the pipeline that would further um that cause. Um Man, I hope so. Okay, last, we have... I've been going two hours almost, but I really want to get through this. I really want to finish um, these motions to dismiss so that we can get catch up with more filings um, on these cases. You know, I feel like in covering Trump's cases, we're on the face of it, covering his cases against him. But at the same time, we're also covering his campaign and we're also covering the templates that I think are being set up to, um, to, uh, to get more bad guys. I think this is all, there's a, there's a design here, a patriotic design, a Patriot design. So, even though it gets dense and there's like so much reading and it's not, Oh no, I, there's like, there's a lot of shows that do news aggregation and they're great, you know, like Badlands daily and a whole bunch of other shows. And part of me wants to jump off of court, of court cases and, um, go and cover other things that I'm interested in in the news. But I just feel like this stuff is important. So, we're going to hit it. And hopefully my audience will forgive me. Like I want to cover this, like Leslie Wolf being subpoenaed and some other things that have gone on with Hunter Biden over the past month or so. Uh, but I think this stuff is really important. Okay. This is the final motion to dismiss number four. This is a short one, and it's President Trump's motion to dismiss for selective and vindictive prosecution. Yeah, Pura Vita, that's the other thing. These are original documents. So it's like we're going to the source material, and um, we go to the source material, we see what it says, and we come up with our own interpretations of it and understanding of it. Um, I'm doing that as well as uh, just like you guys are. All right, President Donald J. Trump respectfully submits this motion to dismiss the charges on the basis of selective and vindictive prosecution. 
the core conduct alleged in the indictment relating to the presentation of alternate electors as a historical basis that dates back to 1800 and spans at least seven other elections. There are no other prosecutions in American history relating to these types of activities. The allegations in the indictment involve constitutionally authorized activities by President Trump as commander in chief, as well as speech and expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment. Given this context, it is no surprise that in the months following the 2020 election, senior government officials rejected an investigation of President Trump as unfounded and potentially unconstitutional. However, Biased prosecutors pursued charges despite the evidence, rather than based on it, with one prosecutor violating DOJ rules and ethical norms by forecasting the investigation in a television interview on 60 Minutes. Even the attorney general felt, quote, boxed in by the onslaught. Unable to address criticism from President Trump through lawful means, while facing public pressure from a House committee investigation not confined by a burden of proof or the same due process standards. The same congressional investigation that failed to preserve a huge amount of exculpatory evidence. Joe Biden pressured DOJ to pursue the nakedly political indictment in this case months before the FBI had even opened an investigation. All right, so I automatically, I think... Automatically, I think that this filing is not going to be that compelling to Judge Chukin and is probably more narrative warfare than it is legal warfare, right? Like that's, that's where we're going and that's fine. That's fine. It's fun. All right. Less than a week before President Trump announced his candidacy for presidency in the 2024 election, Biden used the White House itself to tell anyone listening that he was, quote, making sure that President Trump does not become the next president again. Three days after President Trump formally announced his candidacy, the special counsel was put in place as part of a flawed effort to insulate Biden and his supporters from scrutiny of their obvious and illegal bias. (laughs) Uh, Good job spinning, lawyers. Those of us in the know understand that President Trump wanted a special counsel, and that's why he announced his presidency so early. It forced A.G. Garland to have to name a special counsel. These actions, which are demonstrated by inter alia, Biden's public statements and reports from the New York Times and Washington Post based on leaks from participants in the investigation, require further inquiry and dismissal of the indictment. The news is fake. The leaks are real. Relevant facts. In February and March 2021, according to the Washington Post, the DOJ and FBI rejected aggressive proposals by line prosecutors to target President Trump, including a, quote, wide-ranging effort to trace who had financed the allegedly false claims of a stolen election and paid for the travel of rally-goers-turned-rioters, targeting the finances of Trump backers, examining slates of electors for Trump that his Republican allies had submitted to Congress and the archives, and investigating documents that Trump used to pressure Pence not to certify the election for Biden. The officials who rejected these proposals expressed concerns about First Amendment protected activities, 
uncomfortable analogies to other protest activities and the fact that investigating public figures demanded a high degree of confidence because even a probe that finds no crime can unfairly impugn them. Nevertheless, following a March 2021 60 Minutes interview in which a then-acting United States attorney expressed his personal belief that the evidence probably meets the elements of a seditious conspiracy charge, the prosecutor heard from a close Justice Department ally that the Attorney General and his deputies now felt boxed into the seditious conspiracy charges or to tough questions if they didn't bring them. Boxed in. That is an expression I have used to describe the Biden administration this entire time. Since since 2021, since about this time. <laughs> that 60 minutes, I've said the Biden administration is boxed in. In November 2021, another prosecutor, who is now one of the senior assistant special counsels assigned to the case, I wonder if this is uh, Brack or Brat, asked the FBI to issue grand jury subpoenas targeting associates of President Trump. Quote, according to people familiar with the meeting, the proposal was met with flat rejection. Undeterred by the FBI's determination that the subpoenas were inappropriate, the prosecutor pitched the same idea to the U.S. Postal Inspection Service. Around this time, quote, according to a person familiar with the exchange, an investigator working for the House Committee investigating events related to the January 6, 2021, um, alerted the U.S. Attorney's Office for the District of Columbia to a, quote, few details regarding President Trump in connection with the House Committee's investigation. Following this early coordination, the committee failed to preserve critical information regarding its activities, such as interview materials, records identifying witnesses, and intelligence and other law enforcement information. In April 2022, the New York Times reported that, quote, as recently as late last year, Mr. Biden confided in his inner circle that he believed former President Donald J. Trump was a threat to democracy and should be prosecuted, according to two people familiar with the matter, always according to people familiar. The article also attributed the following to Biden, quote, He has said privately that he wanted the attorney general to act less like a ponderous judge and more like a prosecutor who is willing to take decisive action. That same month, the FBI reportedly opened an investigation of the elector's scheme about 15 months after January 6, 2021 protests at the Capitol. On November 9, 2022, Biden was much less private. At a press conference, Biden stated, quote, We just have to demonstrate that he will not take power if we, if he decides, if he does run. I'm making sure he, under legitimate efforts of our Constitution, does not become the next president again. Footnote. Remarks by President Biden. Okay. On November 15, 2022, President Trump announced that he would run for a second term as president. Three days later, Biden's Justice Department appointed Jack Smith to oversee the case. In the press release appointing Mr. Smith, the Attorney General stated that the appointment was necessary because of recent developments, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well. See, Trump forced Merrick Garland to name a special counsel because Trump wanted a special counsel. I'm telling you, all by design. 
On June 8, 2023, the special counsel's office filed an indictment in the Southern District of Florida. President Trump pleaded not guilty to those charges on June 13, 2023, the day before his birthday. On July 5, 2023, President Trump argued on his True Social account that, quote, Massive prosecutorial misconduct is currently taking place in America. That is a true statement. The weaponization of law enforcement cannot be allowed to happen. On July 12th, President Trump publicly criticized, quote, crooked Joe Biden's targeted weaponized DOJ and FBI, who Trump is an asset for. Following President Trump's not guilty plea in Florida and his public criticisms, the special counsel's office filed the indictment in this case on August 1st, 2023. As we have explained in other filings, the allegations in the indictment focus to an unprecedented extent on acts by President Trump in connection with his official responsibility as leader of this nation, as well as protected speech and expressive conduct protected by the First Amendment, which is discussed in our motion to dismiss on constitutional grounds. Next section, legal standards, selective prosecution, quote, for almost 100 years, the federal courts have recognized that it is unconstitutional to administer the law with an evil eye and an unweak equal hand so as practically to make unjust and illegal discrimination between persons in similar circumstances. United States v. Napper, 1983. From Woe v. Hopkins, 1886, if the executive selectively prosecutes someone Based on impermissible considerations, the equal protection remedy is to dismiss the prosecution. There are two elements to a selective prosecution claim. The defendant must show that the challenged prosecution decision had a discriminatory effect and a discriminatory purpose. United States v. Armstrong, 1996. Brain strain. Thank you for the rumble rant. Thank you very much. I will spend it. I will spend it on stocking stuffers. Okay. Vindictive prosecution. The due process clause. Actually, I'm going to actually, you know what? I lied. I'm going to spend it on more formula one cars. <laughs> Cause I'm trying to get it a whole set. <laughs> So thank you. All right. Vindictive prosecution. The due process clause prohibits prosecutors from upping the ante by filing increased charges in order to retaliate against a defendant for exercising a legal right. United States v. Slatton, 2017. And then quoting Blackledge versus Perry, 1974, quote, in the pretrial context, a defendant must provide additional facts sufficient to show that all of the circumstances, when taken together, support a realistic likelihood of vindictiveness. Quote, a prosecutorial decision to increase charges after a defendant has exercised a legal right does not alone give rise to the presumption in a pretrial context that it is surely a fact relevant to the analysis. United States versus Safavian. 2011. Snarky Des, good afternoon. Also, good afternoon to you, Flying Storm. And Leslie, an imaginary person, but not burn slots. 
definitely not good afternoon to burn slots. They seem to be a troll. One, the prosecutors send me the squirrel. Hey, thank you for the rant. Hey, there you go. All right. Together I can buy with those two rants, I can buy another car. Excellent. Excellent. Maybe I can find a McLaren. I don't have a McLaren. Well, I have that big Lego McLaren, but I don't have a highly detailed 143 scale McLaren. Like I have this Ferrari. The other one, I have others, but they're in the box. I took this one out of the box because I got gift. It was gifted to me twice. So I took it out of the box so I could play with it, you know, because I'm still five years old and will forever be. Okay. Um, the prosecutors have behaved in a discriminatory and unconstantly selective fashion. With respect to selective prosecution, the relevant theory of this case is that it is illegal to dispute the outcome of an election and work with others to propose alternate electors. As we made clear in our motion to dismiss based on fair notice principles, which we incorporate herein, the track record of similar unprosecuted efforts dates back to 1800 and includes at least seven other elections. In light of the extensive history, it is not surprising that at least three Supreme Court justices have suggested that the Electoral Count Act contemplates Congress having to select among conflicting slates of electors. See Bush v. Gore 2000. What is surprising and is likely to have an impermissibly discriminatory effect in this case and the 2024 election is the efforts by the special counsel's office to prosecute President Trump based on protected speech relating to the very same strategy. This prosecution is also driven by an unconstitutionally discriminatory purpose. Biden's publicly stated objective is to use the criminal justice system to incapacitate President Trump, his main political rival and the leading candidate in the upcoming election. Quote, a defense, this is from Napper, that case, Quote, a defendant may not be selectively prosecuted on the basis of such considerations as religion, race, or the desire to deter the proper exercise of constitutional rights. No amount of follow the evidence, course, correction by the attorney general or the special counsel can mask the driving force behind this case, especially where there remain unresolved questions about responsibility for missing evidence collected by a House committee that was privately coordinating with prosecutors beginning in at least late 2021. But also, okay, they leave, they're going to leave something out here. There was a lot of contention between um, FBI, DOJ and um, the January 6th committee. They were pissed at each other. Because the J6 committee would not cooperate with DOJ and was getting in the way of what DOJ was doing. Um, so this narrative here that is being advanced in this filing is all well and good, but I don't think it's entirely accurate. I don't think it's the full story at all. John Otter, <laughs> unless signs is made whole, F1 is asshole. Man, it really sucks. Carlos Signs got screwed over by the track two races in a row, last two races of the season. His car completely wrecked because of a problem with the track, not a problem of his own. And then the, the F1 doesn't have any, they don't have any regulations that actually make it where they can make him whole. 
Uh, there's just no, there's no avenue for it. It sucks. I feel bad for him because he had a, he, he's, I think Carlos Sainz is a bit underrated. I think the Ferrari lineup is the strongest lineup in all of F1 with, with Norris and Piastri being a close second, um, depending on Piastri actually coming good. He's real. He is really good, but he has been inconsistent with the tires. Um, Unchained, thank you. They gifted some shades to my McLaren fund. Excellent. Thank you very much. Okay, back to the... Oh, wait, wait. There was... Um, what is this? Asa Deer Panteth. Thank you very much. That is a very kind and generous Rumble rant. I can buy more than one car with that. Oh, man, my grid is going to grow. I'm going to fill the whole grid up and then have races with my my kids. <laughs> Thank you very much. Okay. Let's let's finish this. We're almost we're almost done with this right here. All right, quote, the government cannot base its decision to prosecute on some unjustifiable standard such as a defendant's political beliefs. United States v. Judd 2021. In United States versus Diggs, the DC court reasoned that, quote, a concern for the integrity of the legislative process prompts careful inquiry into a congressman's claim of discriminatory prosecution, but found the defendant's evidence to be lacking. The evidence in Diggs was limited to the broad assertion of a conflict with the then incumbent administration. Here, in contrast, after prosecutors who are now part of the prosecution team were rebuffed while shopping the inappropriate investigation around the FBI and the Postal Service, Biden told his advisors that President Trump, quote, should be prosecuted, urged the attorney general to take decisive action, and declared from the state dining room of the White House that he was making sure that President Trump does not become the next president again. What the government has done here, this is a quote from United States versus Crowther, 1972. What the government has done here is to undertake to suppress a viewpoint it does not wish to hear under the guise of enforcing a general regulation prohibiting disturbances on government property. Just as discrimination on the basis of religion or race is forbidden by the Constitution, so is discrimination on the basis of the exercise of protected First Amendment activities, whether done as an individual or, as in this case, as a member of a group unpopular with the government. As a result, there is, at the very minimum, a prima facie case of selective prosecution. Next, the sequence of events demonstrates vindictiveness. Parallel facts support President Trump's vindictive prosecution argument. This case urged by Biden, when many prosecutors and agents appropriately saw no basis for it, is a straightforward retaliatory response to President Trump's decision as commander-in-chief in 2020, is exercising his constitutional rights to free speech and to petition for the redress of grievances, and his decision to run for political office. Without question, this is a high-profile prosecution with international ramifications, no less, which has a far greater potential to give rise to vindictive motive, United States v. Slatten 2017. That motive is manifest. 
President Trump criticized the process and results of the 2020 election. He criticized Biden and his family before, during, and after the election, including with respect to misconduct and malfeasance in connection with the Ukrainian oil and gas company known as Burisma, Chinese State Energy HK Limited, and Russian oligarchs such as Yelena Baterina. President Trump is now the leading candidate in the 2024 election and raises all these concerns in that context as well. Likewise, President Trump also criticized the special counsel's office after charges were filed against him in Florida. Following those criticisms, and after President Trump exercised his constitutional right to plead not guilty in Florida, the prosecutors added additional charges in this district. The record is more than sufficient to support a presumption of vindictiveness. A hearing is necessary, they say. At the very least, even if the special counsel's office makes self-preserving arguments in an effort to articulate a defense of the prosecutor's charging decision, where there is none, a hearing is necessary to give President Trump an opportunity to demonstrate that their proffered evidence is pretextual. Quote, the defenses of selective prosecution and vindictive prosecution both require the defendant to probe the mental state of the prosecutors, requiring the defendant to prove more than a colorable claim before compelling discovery might prematurely stifle a legitimate defense of vindictive prosecution for lack of evidence. That is quoted from United States v. Heideke in 1990. The standard, quote, necessarily is lower than the clear evidence standard required for dismissal of indictment, United States v. Hajia, 1998. Here, at a minimum, Biden's statements from the White House and leaked accounts of flaws in the underlying investigation require additional fact-finding before these arguments can be resolved. Conclusion. For the foregoing reasons, President Trump respectfully submits that the indictment should be dismissed on the basis of selective and vindictive prosecution or, in the alternative, the court should hold a hearing to develop the record regarding due process violations by the special counsel's office. Interesting. Okay, so that that filing, on the face of it, like if you just, if you just, uh, Take it as is, no bicameral thinking, no kayfabe, no nothing. Just like as it is, it fits squarely into the MAGA narrative. If it's if it's correctly with what President Trump has said, it it's coherent as far as that narrative goes. And I think this is a great place for narrative layers. Like that is like the base layer, totally understandable, makes a good argument with that. But the next layer of it is that this is actually narrative warfare using this filing. And there's way more design going on here. And um, I find this kind of amusing of all of like the other filings, the other three motions for dismissal, I thought were really good legal arguments and um, very compelling. This one I don't find as compelling. I find it entertaining, far more so than compelling. Um, but I also find it just I don't I don't know I don't know how to say it. It's like a fanfare. It's like snack bar food. It's like nachos. Whereas the other ones were 
ribeye and garlic potatoes and asparagus and uh, fine wine. This one is nachos and hot dogs and funnel cake. <laughs> so uh, I don't I don't know if that makes sense to y'all, but that's just how it is to me. Um, so we have finished the motions to dismiss, which means what we can do next. Let's see. This is, um, you know, uh, six to six, you know, I wouldn't even say it's frivolous. I wouldn't say it's frivolous. I think it's definitely worthwhile. Just like it's worthwhile getting some funnel cake. You know, I think it's worthwhile. Um, I don't think it's worthwhile getting snack bar nachos. I will say that. <laughs> give me, give me real nachos. Uh, but I'm kind of a snob about Mexican food. Uh, so next, what we can do on Wednesday morning, unless I just get a bug in me and I want to stream tomorrow, which I may do. I haven't decided yet, but we're still a month. We're still a month behind on this case, but it's all worth it because these are interesting filings. So we have some of these other filings to go through next time. Here is opposition to Trump's motion for discovery. I want to see opposition to stay, SIPA filing. I see um I see motions that are filed in support of Trump's motions to dismiss. I'm looking for where Jack Smith has responded. Has Jack Smith filed opposing the motion to dismiss? Reply in support of Trump discovery. Reply motion to stay case pending immunity determination. Memorandum in opposition. Nope, that's for extension to file. That just means Trump asked for more time and the... Uh, the special counsel is saying, no, judge, don't give him more time. They're arguing over subpoenas and discovery. We'll get into that on Wednesday, I think. There we go. So on November 6th, this is where Jack Smith filed his first response in opposition to Trump's motion to dismiss. This one right here. How big is it? 79 pages. Holy shit. Holy shit. Okay, well, some of it is citations right there. We can knock five pages off. Wow. All right, that's going to be a doozy. That's going to be a doozy. He's responding to more than one. He's responding to motion to dismiss 113 and 114. Okay. And then here's his next one. Opposition by motion to strike. Here's the other one. How big is this opposition? 14 pages. That's the selective vindictive prosecution thing. Okay. Okay, we will do it. We will do it. We will keep following this case step by step, regardless of how behind we are, because it's fun going through these filings. Okay. And then... Let me check in on um, the Florida case real quick. We've kind of gotten lucky with it. 
I'm scrolling my bookmarks here. I know you can't see that on screen. But we kind of got lucky with the uh, docs case in this case because we caught up on the docs case first and that turned out to be fortuitous because uh, the docs case has hit a pause while we've been going through the DC case. So we caught up on all of these and then since then the only filing has been this, two docket entries that are sealed. And I, I'm guessing they have to do with SIPA, classified, infor, uh, classified information and scheduling, but I don't know. They could be anything. They could be absolutely anything. So, Gutta, Gutta77, shout out to the poet. Thank you very much, man. I'm going to, let me just a second. I'm going to look your name up because I swear there's a German word that I am thinking of where you don't. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe. Interesting. Thank you very much for the rant. All right, everyone. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. If you're interested in supporting the show, there are links in the description of the show and also on my link tree. It's Christmas shopping time. There are products you can buy through those affiliate links and you can get a gift for someone or for yourself. And a few dollars of what you spend gets kicked back to me. And also these are Patriot companies that I'm associated with. I use their products. I, um, I don't take on any advertisers that whose products I don't like. And uh, I'm a very proud to have the uh, advertisers that I do have. So if you guys are interested, there's Manly Cans, there's uh, Benson Honey Farms. I'm trying to find the right quick. Here we go. Benson Honey Farms, bootleg products, my own merch store, buy me a coffee through Ko-Fi, all of those things. So really appreciate it, guys. I am glad to be back. And, uh, reading all these cases with you guys really appreciate it. And thank you for your support. Share the show, hit the like button over on rumble. Uh, we've been hanging out in the, on the leaderboard. We've been hanging out in the twenties and thirties on rumble. We used to be in the teens. I want to get, I want to get back to the teens. So hit that like button and share the show, please. Y'all have a blessed Monday. Stay safe and stay positive. Remember we're not going to win every battle but we are going to win this war. And I'm almost so pro that I had the music ready to go for me doing the end tagline. Oh, oh I, I need to log in. <laughs> there we go. I knew there was something I forgot to do as I set up the show. I forgot to log into the music player. Hold up. Hold up. Let me, let me get this log in. We got it. We got to play. We got to play my friend, my best friend's band. We have to. Here we go. Elegant Tiger, Ake Dodansu. Have a great one, guys. I will see you later. There it goes. <laughs>